Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 211 with Jennifer Riel. Jennifer is sharing how you don't have to put up with unacceptable trade-offs when you're making a really tough choice, but rather you can create additional great choices. So you'll learn one, why you should fall in love with opposing approaches to solving a problem. Two, how to hold two approaches in tension to help generate optimal solutions. And three, the three questions to ask for creating better answers. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we reference here, you can find that on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep211. And while at awesomeatyourjob.com, I encourage you to check out some of our great resources. One I will highlight here is just the Gold Nugget email list. So if you wish, you could take notes while listening to some of these episodes, but you just can't because your hands are tied up. You can't put the pen to paper. Well, we do that for you. Taking notes on some of the most actionable, insightful, and succinct nuggets that you can put into play and we send them right to your email inbox each morning a new episode goes live so you can sign up for that at awesomeatyourjob.com or right from your smartphone quickly by texting nug that's n-u-g to the number 444-999 if you text n-u-g to 444-999 that's three four three nines you can sign up that way now here's jennifer's story Jennifer Riel is an adjunct professor at the Rotman School of Management, University of Toronto, specializing in creative problem solving. Her focus is on helping everyone from undergraduate students to business executives to better choices more of the time. An award-winning teacher, Jennifer leads training on integrative thinking, strategy, and innovation, both at the Rotman School and at organizations of all types, from small nonprofits to some of the largest companies in the world. Now, here's Jennifer. Jennifer, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. It's my pleasure. Well, I think we're really going to enjoy digging into some of this stuff. And I wanted to kick off by hearing a tale from your checkered past, perhaps. You, at one point, were in the back of a police car. What was the backstory? Well, it is important to understand um, that I was a bit of a rule follower as a child uh-huh. in order to understand why it's relevant uh, that I was in the back of a police car. So I was in the back of a police car when I was four years old. And this came to be because my mother had discovered that there was a neighbor's dog who had had puppies. And uh, my brother and I were very excited to go see them. And my brother was so excited. My two years older than me brother was so excited. He set off before me. And my mother said, it's no problem. You can go just keep walking until you see your brother. It did not occur to her nor to me that he would have gone into the backyard rather than in the front yard. So rather than walking the four houses that would have been appropriate, I being a very literal and rule following child, (laughs) kept walking and walking through many, many, many streets through a, a intersection with a with a light, and uh, I guess ended up walking about thirty minutes as a, as a four year old until a very nice lady stumbled upon me and wondered why there was a crying four year old walking down the street and sent me home in the back of a police car. That is the most badass moment of my. <laughs> well, that's a great one, and you're telling the story on podcasts years later. Indeed. And interestingly enough, my brother became a police officer. So somehow he was more uh, shaped by the experience, I think, uh, even more than I was. Oh, that's good. Thank you. I'm really excited to talk about your book, Creating Great Choices. I love great choices and creating them. Tell us, what's the book all about and why does it matter? So the book is about an idea called integrative thinking. And it actually comes from my co-author, Roger Martin. He was the dean here at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. And about a decade ago, he wrote a book called The Opposable Mind. And this idea that that he was writing about was that there are some highly successful leaders out there who, when confronted with a really challenging, daunting either-or choice, refuse to make the unacceptable trade-off and will actively seek to create a better answer out of the opposing answers or that that tough either-or. 
And it was a really successful book. People really enjoyed it. I was a student here uh, and met Roger uh, as he was writing the book. And when I graduated, he asked me to stay and work with him, figure out how you would actually teach this. If this is a useful thing to do, if highly successful leaders seem inclined to do it, is there something that we can teach to those of us for whom it isn't a natural way of being or, or something that that just comes naturally to us? And so that was, as I say, 10 years ago. And, and over the last 10 years, Roger and I have spent a lot of time figuring out what is that process that you could follow, whether as an individual or in a team, to help you have a, a greater likelihood of creating a great choice rather than just accepting the trade-off. Oh, that's exciting. So could you give us an example of, you know, you got a, a tough either or intense trade-off choice and you say out of those opposing choices, a new one emerges. Could you maybe show us how that unfolds in practice? Sure. And I think that it can happen at, at all levels of the organization, uh, but I'll start with one that that happens to feature a CEO just because it's kind of a fun example. So um, this is from Lego Group. So we all know the great little Lego bricks of our childhood. And the CEO there is a former CEO there. Now chairman is a is a lovely man, former McKinsey consultant named Jorgen Vignudstrup. And he was CEO at a time when they were thinking beyond the bricks. How do we start to extend our brand even more than we have? Literally all that they make at Lego are the little Lego bricks. Mm-hmm. And they partner to do branded entertainment. And so we were familiar with Lego Star Wars and Lego Batman. At the time, they they hadn't really um, done that on their own. They partnered with Lucasfilm or Marvel or whoever else it might be uh, in order to produce that branded entertainment. And eventually someone did come to them and say, hey, we think there should be a movie. It's really um, a Lego movie, all, all about the Lego brand, original entertainment that isn't tied to someone else's existing uh, properties. And they had actually started down that path. They'd made a film uh, a few years before based entirely on their own intellectual property. And it was kind of a direct to DVD, um, back when we had DVDs, uh, not terribly successful, not terribly entertaining film. And the reason that it had been so unsuccessful was that they had really tried to make um, almost corporate propaganda, right? It was, it was like <laughs> the most true to the brand, inoffensive kind of entertainment. You can imagine the kind of film that is produced out of out of a corporation, right? Oh, I would love it if there's a gem of dialogue we could recall to <laughs> reference, but I don't know if you have one handy. Um, well, <laughs> what it will tell you, this will tell you, I don't have a dialogue, but they named the main character after the chairman of the company. All right. And so um, when a Hollywood studio came calling and said, you know, let's let's make a, a movie together. Jorgen said, OK, I feel like I'm, I'm in the grips of a really difficult choice here. I can either hand over all of the creative control to the Hollywood studio, believing that they know how to make a great movie but I am giving up my brand, right? I'm going to have someone else have the ability to be true and loving to my brand or, or destroy it if I give up all creative control. Or I can insist that we have final say, that we as the company are going to have the ability to get final sign off on all of the creative decisions. But it's going to be really hard to get a great creative team who is willing to make a movie under those conditions. And it really felt like there was no great answer there. Like you sort of in a place of where you're trying to optimize, right? Like how much creative control do I have to give up in order to get just enough good creative talent on the film? And Jorgen's challenge was to say, now I got to create a new kind of answer here. I have to recognize what I truly value from each of these different models. And he said, if I stop going back and forth and, and trying to convolute an answer um, and just ask myself, how might I actually get a film that is creatively brilliant and wonderfully fun and is also truly loving to the Lego brand? How might I take an approach that actually gives me the best of both of those worlds? And as it turns out in this particular case, he, he uh, leaned very heavily into the idea of giving up creative control 
didn't have any sign off. He said, you guys are the, are the filmmakers. We don't actually want approval, but we do want to insist on one thing, which is that before you start writing the film, before you start actually animating anything, there's a bunch of people we want you to meet. And let's just go spend that time. And so went and introduced the filmmakers, Lord and Miller, to um, Lego fans, Lego employees, the, the people who truly lived and breathed Lego and, and have been passionate about it their entire lives. And knowing that in, in deeply engaging with those users, that it was going to um, help those filmmakers to fall in love with the brand as well. So they wouldn't need to have strict controls. They wouldn't need to have final say because they were turning those outsider filmmakers into people who had true love and affection for the brand. Okay. That's clever. I'm with you. Thank you. So very good. Thank you for making that come to life. So then when it comes to integrative thinking, you've got sort of a four-step methodology. But first, could we you know, define, when you say integrative thinking, what precisely are we referencing here? So when we say integrative thinking, what we're really talking about is leveraging the tension of opposing answers, leveraging the tension of the either-or to create a better choice than what you started with, to actually use that to push you to generate a new answer, new value that didn't exist already. Instead of starting with a blank piece of paper or instead of taking one answer and trying to make it a little bit better, it's about really using the tension between these two opposing ideas and and using that as the creative spark. Mm -hmm. Okay, understood. Well, so then how do we do that in practice? So we think there are four loose stages that, that you need to go through. You actually have to go step by step through this. Um, and I'll just take you through the first one and, and you can let me know when you're ready for me to move on to sure. uh, two, three, and four. So step one is to uh, take the problem, whatever problem that is. And as I say, I believe that there are problems at every level of the organization, every stage of your career where you feel torn between um two opposing answers where you wish there was a, a better choice and really tease out the two opposing answers. So um, I've got a project in front of me and I know that the efficient and uh, cost-effective thing to do is to standardize, to do what we've done before. But I'm a creative person and I really want to make this project my own and I want to customize it to this context and make it truly great. And I feel like that's going to be a great answer, but it's less efficient and it's going to be more cost, uh, costly to do it. And so what what choice do I make here? Um, and so in that particular case, what we would say is build out the two opposing answers. What would it look like if this was a totally standardized uh, approach? And what would it look like if it was a totally customized approach? And then seek to fall in love with those two models. What do I really get from that standardized approach? What do I get? What do my teammates get? What does the customer get? What does the shareholder get? If I take a super standardized approach to this project, really seek to understand those benefits and where they come from and and why someone would choose to take that path and then shift gears and do exactly the same thing with customization. What is it that that I get and those really important uh, other stakeholders get from choosing a highly customized approach? And really uh, spend time with each of them. We do talk about this as a process of falling in love with the models. Uh, And then you will have in front of you, instead of a pro-con chart, the pros and the cons of the two opposing models, it it really is an expression of of what's valuable or worthwhile Mm -hmm. about these two opposing models. Okay, understood. So that's step one. You're really trying to fall in love and build out a massive, compelling why on Mm -hmm. each of them, you know, in some detail. So what happens next? So the next part is, is actually, um, a little bit harder. So even in the first stage, um, the, the hard part would be if there's one of the models you feel a little less comfortable with, or you're less likely to fall in love with, you can bring people in to help you, um, you can put yourself in the shoes of people who really do love that model. And so normally people are able to get through um, the process of, of falling at least a little bit in love with the two opposing answers. The next stage is taking a step back and really looking at the two models together, holding them in tension. 
and asking yourself, you know, what do I see as I as I look at these? You might observe that actually they're more similar in some ways than I might have thought. There are outcomes that you get, like engagement, for instance. You might get really great uh, engagement from certain stakeholders from standardization, and you might get really great engagement from other stakeholders from customizing. Um, you might see points of tension where there's a really great outcome on one side and it's just missing totally on the other. And you start to use that to, to really push yourself and say, what is it I truly value? What is it our team truly values from these two models? What am I trying to get? Uh, and this can be challenging because it's a social process. What I truly value from, from the two models might be different than, than what you value, Pete. And so we have to kind of um, spend time navigating that and understanding what it is that you value and why, what it is that I value and why, what assumptions are each of us making about these existing models or about what's possible. Um, we spend some time thinking about cause and effect in this in this stage. So if there's a really great outcome, what currently causes that outcome and could it be caused in a different way? And when I say this is a little bit harder, it's in part harder because we don't always know what we don't know, right? So when I say mm -hmm. to you, tell me the assumptions behind your thinking, you may not be aware of those, right? They just, it just feels like the right answer. And so this is why it's really, really helpful to do this with a group and in particular, a diverse group, a, a group that has um, diverse perspectives already coming in because it's a little bit easier then to start to see different kinds of assumptions that sit underneath and, and underpin our thinking. Okay. So it's interesting. So the contrast then from step one, which is just elaborating upon, you know, articulating, writing down, trying to make the case for, fall in love with the alternatives. The second one, you know, holding them in tension. I mean, that's an interesting turn of a phrase. I mean, that's just how I feel in my belly as you <laughs> describe this. It's like, it's my temptation, a Myers-Briggs judging type over here. <laughs> my temptation is I want to lock it down fast and get it done and nailed and clear, kind of established. And so it sounds like you're just saying, well, Pete, just go ahead and do the opposite of that and roll around in, in both of them for a while. That's absolutely correct. That's what I'm encouraging you to do. And it is a bit of an act of will. I'm with you. I really like closure. I really like certainty. My inclination is always to look for that right answer. And this has been a way of thinking that's taken a little time for me to learn and engage with because it is holding off judgment. It's holding off saying, this is the right answer. This is this is the one that feels like it, it satisfies me and dwelling in the discomfort, frankly, of not judging, of not saying which is better, but really seeking to understand. I have a, a colleague, a, a great friend who's really informed our thinking on this, a woman named Hillary Austin, and she studies artistry. And she makes the distinction between consideration of an idea and evaluation of that. And we learn evaluation really early, right? Is it a good mm -hmm. idea or a bad idea? Is it the right answer or the wrong answer? And what she encourages us to do and what she believes great artists do really well is stay just a little bit longer than we normally would in a space of consideration, considering the models without dismissing any uh, too early. Okay. All right. So an act of will, holding back, experiencing the tension, doing the consideration. And then what's step three? This is where we start to, to flex our creativity muscles a little bit. This is where we say, given all of that, given um, the, the tension, given the, the thinking that we've done, given the things we truly value from these two models, how might we create a better answer? Something that takes the best of, of the two opposing models and creates something new that actually solves the problem. And in this particular case, we provide three questions uh, that you can ask to help you push your thinking forward on this. When we first were, were building out this process for integrative thinking, I'll be honest, we would get to this stage of the process and we would say to people, okay, now... Have a great idea. <laughs> yeah, try to come up with a better answer. Good luck. <laughs> Off you go. And sometimes they could, right? Like they'd spend enough time with the models and there was someone who just was naturally more creative person or whatever it might be, or just luck, uh, they would generate an, an answer that, that felt good to folks. But it didn't feel totally satisfying that 
we had no better advice than look for a better answer. So we actually went back, Roger and I went back and looked at, um, this is about five years into our work, looked at all of the answers we'd seen from those original interviews that Roger had done of highly successful leaders from all of our students up to that point, who'd done projects for us, executives who'd applied it to their work and said, are there patterns here? Are there ways they go about combining the models together that helps them create new value. And, and those are the three questions we've generated is, is the three patterns we detected. So some folks would narrow down to just two tiny but essential elements of the opposing models. It's really about these two core ideas for me and all the rest of it's kind of extraneous and less important. But if I could take just these two pieces and use them as the start of my new better answer, then I can create and build and 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 go from there. And so um, that's one pathway is what are those two little hidden gems that you would choose? And once you've pulled those out, you can start to say, what could I create if those were the basis of my better answer? Oh, I really dig that. Because <laughs> I think about the Legos right now is it makes sense to me that if you have those intention for a while, you could say, boy, what's most essential is that these creative people just love Legos the way we yeah. love Legos. Yeah. That's got to happen. <laughs> it's like, well, and so I'm hearing you that in so doing, like you might not arrive at, you know, some what those essential hidden gems are if you don't sort of hang out in the tension for a while in order to let that percolate up. I think that's a, a great way of putting it, Pete. You got to spend a little time in that and grapple with what really is the essence of this for me. And I, I think you've got a great example there where it's like what we need on the one hand is is uh, for us to have confidence. And on the other hand, for uh, the the filmmakers to feel freedom and the way to do that is to build something where they love us enough that we feel confidence, but that love enables them to create in a way that is um, true to their vision, but also true to us. So you can imagine that that, that would be um, something they had to dwell in for a while. And Jorgen's clear, he didn't come to that answer by himself or immediately, but he just knew he needed a better answer than the film that had come before. So that's one question you can ask. You can also say, um, you know, I've got one model I really, really love, uh, but it's missing one important thing from the opposing answer. Um, and so could I actually take the model that I love and, and really bet on it, double down uh, in blackjack terms, bet on that in such a way that it actually extends it and, and, and does so in a way that I get that one thing I really care for from the other model. And in that case, you'd have to say like, what's that one really important thing to me and how could I reconfigure the model I really love to get me to that. And so the example we often use is actually homegrown. I'm Canadian from Toronto and we're about to start the Toronto International Film Festival here um, this week. And it was founded um, in the 1970s as a little community film festival, a festival just uh, for the folks in the city to go and see movies from all over the world. And it was pretty successful in terms of getting engagement from local members of the community, but it wasn't very sustainable, right? You can imagine there's all kinds of little film festivals all over the world that barely eke out enough in revenue to keep going. And that was really the case that they were facing by the mid-90s. And so there were two models of, of how to run a film festival in the world at the time. And, and the CEO of uh, the Toronto International Film Festival was a man named Pierce Handling. And he actually is really clear. He says, you know, we we had our little community festival where it's really you know, non-competitive and, and it's really about access to those movies and you just buy a ticket and you go and see them. Um, very open and accessible, um, kind of very Canadian, if you will. Mm -hmm. And then there is this very uh, different model that is highly sustainable, um, but really operates in a completely different way. And that would be the festival at Cannes. And that is an industry festival, right? That is movies for insiders. It's got a, a jury and a prize. It's very tightly curated. Toronto might have a few hundred films and Khan has 25. 
And so Pierce's challenge was to say he loved almost everything about his little community festival. Um, but it was missing one thing that he truly valued that, that he could look at Khan and say, what is it that drives that? And it, it's too easy to say the thing that it's missing is money, right? What drives the money at Khan? And as he looked at it and he grappled with it and really sought to understand what Khan had that he didn't, it actually came down to something kind of interesting. It was, it was buzz, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So you get, um, all of the media in the world and all of the movie stars all show up at Con for these fabulous parties and it's highly exclusive and all the velvet ropes and the yachts and even the prize itself, the Palm Door, is a highly exclusive prize. It's only 25 films can compete and then one wins. And all of this is a real engine for buzz. It creates excitement and enthusiasm. Um, and it's a virtuous cycle, right? The movie stars want to win a prize and they show up and then all the media wants to cover it and they show up. And the more the media is there, the more the movie stars want to be there. And the more the movie stars are there, the more the media wants to be there. And all of this drives huge engagement by sponsors and film studios and brings in all kinds of money. And so Pierce's challenge was to say, not how can I be a little bit more like Khan? How do I bring in a bit of exclusivity in order to drive some revenue? And maybe it'll take away a little bit of what I love from my existing little community festival. Instead, what he said was, could I imagine making my festival even more inclusive? Could I imagine it becoming the most community-oriented film festival in the world in such a way that I could actually use that to drive buzz. And what he had on his side was the fact that the particular audience he was talking about is a Toronto audience. And if you've never been to Toronto, one of the really cool things about it as a city is it is massively diverse. Um, We're told, I don't know if it's really true, but we're told it's the most diverse city in the world, more languages spoken, um, more foreign passports held than any other city anywhere in the world. And what that means is that if a Toronto audience buys tickets and goes and likes your movie, so will everyone else, right? It's massively predictive. It can help a studio figure out which films to bet on and actually help them, you know, figure out what kinds of film festival movies are more likely to be successful at the global box office or more likely to be appealing to Academy Awards voters. Um, it's just a very predictive kind of prize in a way that the Palm Door isn't. The Palm Door will tell you if it's a great film, but it won't necessarily tell you if it's going to be successful. And so Piers was able to take that idea of, of the audience being central and create a prize based around the audience that was buzzworthy and exciting and that the industry cared about. And it would actually um, create a really cool and new uh, and better kind of film festival. So it is now 20 years on, um, the Toronto International Film Festival is uh, incredibly successful. It takes over the city for two uh, weeks every year. And a couple of years ago, Time Magazine actually said that it is still the case. Con is still more famous than Toronto, but Toronto is now the most important film festival in the world, which is pretty cool, right? Yes, mission accomplished. Exactly. And, um, you know, our, the secret ambition of all Canadians is to, is to prove to Americans that, that we're just as awesome. (laughs) Uh, We try really hard. Um, and so we're always very excited about our, our Canadian stories. So that's one of my favorites. And so I guess it maybe goes without saying, but I'll just say anyway. And so, and thusly, with the huge buzz and Mm -hmm. growth in attendance, et cetera, the money picture became just fine. Is that true? That is absolutely so. They were able to attract even more sponsors because whereas Khan is for a very exclusive, very small group of people, and you can absolutely get very high-end sponsors who want to engage with that very select audience, we're now talking about a much broader kind of audience. And so you can get banks or beer companies or car companies who want to appeal to that audience as well. And to be associated with this really glamorous, cool, interesting, buzzworthy event. Okay. And what's the third question? The third question um, is, could I think about the problem differently? So in this case, you might have two models. And as you look at them, you say, you know what? There's so much 
really great stuff in each of these two models. And what I wish was that I could actually do them both, but there's some uh, particular reason, some tension that makes it really, really hard for me to imagine doing both. It's hard for me to imagine being centralized and decentralized at the same time, um, or to focus on uh, investing in the status quo and also invest in the future. Often if I try to do both, what I wind up with is a, is kind of a sad compromise that isn't quite as good as either one and, and doesn't really solve my problem. And so in this case, we say, can I think about the problem differently? Can I find a really meaningful dividing line in the problem where if I break the problem apart along that, that sort of schism, I can apply these two models to totally different parts of the problem. So I can say, if it's about a learning organization, are there kinds of learners or parts of the world or stages of development of learning programs that um, operate totally differently, where I get huge, huge benefit uh, from decentralization in this part of the world or this kind of learner or this kind of program and huge, huge benefits um, from centralizing in this totally different kind of, of program. And in this case, it's not just saying, well, let's do both or let's just arbitrarily divide. It's trying to find some meaningful dividing line where um, you really do get that one plus one equals three kind of answer. Okay. And so do you have an example for this one there where a bit of segmentation makes all the difference? Yeah. So I'll actually go back a little bit because this is, this is my um, favorite example. It's actually one Roger wrote about in The Opposable Mind. And it's, it's one that helped me come to the insight that you could actually break the problem apart in new ways. And it's A.G. Laffley, who was the CEO of a company called Procter & Gamble. You probably know them. They make mm -hmm. everything, right? Um, Crest and Pampers and Tide and uh, Pantene. So uh, when A.G. took over as CEO, the company was in an innovation crisis. Their, their previous CEO had been fired. This was about the year 2000. And uh, the previous CEO had faced this, this real meaningful challenge, which was that P&G was pretty good at incremental innovation, new flavor of crust, right? Mm -hmm. They were great at that. And every time they came out with a new flavor of crust, they'd steal a few customers away from Colgate and maybe a few of their own customers would move over to the new flavor and they'd gain just a little tiny bit of share. But then the next year, Colgate would introduce their new flavor and they'd steal all those customers back, right? What they struggled with was breakthrough innovation, right? That brand new to the world, no one's ever thought of it before, whole new category, brand new idea kind of innovation. And as it turns out, I know this is going to be shocking to you. It turns out that really big bureaucratic multinational organizations <laughs> aren't good at that, right? right? They're actually the world's perfect idea destroying machine, right? <laughs> you couldn't design something better to actually kill new ideas than the modern uh, multinational global organization. And so he was faced with this conundrum of how to think about investing in R&D. His predecessor had massively invested in R&D. He ramped up this, the global spend on R&D by three times. It was huge, but then nothing happened. There was no change. Mm. About 18 months had gone by and there was no discernible difference. And you could say, well, that is just because innovation takes time, but the board wasn't willing to, to take that bet. So they fired AG's predecessor, handed him the job. He walks in essentially on day one, and he is confronted with this crisis. Because his predecessor had invested so much in innovation, they tanked the short-term financials. They weren't meeting their numbers. Um, they were actually losing money. And so there were a bunch of people in the organization who said, we got to stop this craziness on innovation. We've got to, you know, get our innovation spend back down to industry average or even below, because frankly, it's, it's just too high. We are not an innovation company. We're a marketing company. We should just, you know, focus on selling more soap and, and we will figure out the innovation problem some other way, some other day. And there are things that AG likes about that. He likes fixing the financials. He likes getting the analysts and the, and the shareholders off of his back and maybe he earns a bonus if he does it. 
but he can't stand the idea of walking away from innovation. And there's a whole bunch of people in the organization who say, of course, we have to invest in innovation. The problem is we just haven't invested enough or we haven't given it enough time. And again, he he likes the idea of fixing the innovation problem, but but he just can't stomach the idea of doing so um, at the cost of, of these absolutely massive uh, expenditures. And so, again, you could treat it as an optimization problem, right? You could draw a line between what we used to spend and what we spend now and do some projections around just how much would I have to spend in order to get just enough innovation. And here's where AG says, no, what I need is the ability to spend way less money than I've ever spent on innovation, but actually get way more innovation out the other end. And lots of CEOs would say something like that. They would say, please just do more with less. Mm-hmm. And then shockingly, nothing would happen because anyone who's ever been told do more with less knows that if they all, if they knew how to do more with less, they would be doing it, right? People are, are not... Um, just lounging about spending resources willy-nilly, they are doing the best to be stewards of their organization. And so AG had to say, how do I think differently about innovation? How do I break this problem apart? And in this particular case, he looked at the, the stages of the innovation process and how they respond to money, because ultimately that's the, the thing he's trying to do is figure out how do I think about how I spend money on, on innovation. And where he found his dividing line was between two stages of the innovation process that respond very differently to money. So if you think about R&D, right, research and development, um, research is invention, coming up with a brand new idea no one's ever thought of before. Development is commercialization, taking that cool idea and turning it into a viable product and getting it on supermarket shelves and advertising it and branding and all of those great things. It turns out there are massive economies of scale and commercialization. Mm-hmm. If you have a bunch of great ideas and you're doing more commercialization than anyone else, you get better at it, you buy more inputs, and so they're cheaper on a per-input basis. You have a better relationship with the retailers, and so you can get preferential rates. Huge economies of scale in commercialization. There really aren't the same kinds of economies of scale in invention right? Invention is coming up with that new idea. And you can spend a million dollars to come up with a great idea and get nothing. You can spend $10 and get a billion dollar idea because these ideas are at least a little randomly distributed, right? You or I could come up with a breakthrough new idea tomorrow and neither of us works for Procter & Gamble. And so AG said, there is nothing that I can do to give myself proprietary access to great ideas. There's no amount of money I could ever spend that would get me there. But could I think about dividing the activities of invention and commercialization into two very separate tasks and treat them very differently? So commercialization, yes, let's invest. Let's spend more than our competitors and get great at it and build a real commercialization expertise and engine, but reinvent how we do invention. Instead of saying we, P&G, have to come up with these ideas and we have to have a patent on it within our labs, can we go out and connect with small inventors and university professors and, and startups out in the world, lots and lots and lots of them, and instead of saying we needed to invent the idea, we'll buy the idea or we'll license it and maybe only a small portion of the ideas that we actually encounter will be worth buying, worth investing. But the really cool thing is that we don't have to pay anything for the 80% of ideas, 85% of ideas that that don't look like they're going to be worthwhile to us. Whereas if we were inventing everything ourselves, you don't know until you spent the money, right? You, mm-hmm. you, you ultimately wind up having to spend the money. So that's what he did. He and his team, he would be the first to say it wasn't him. Uh, he and his senior team who were working on this challenge broke the problem apart uh, along the dividing line of invention and commercialization and applied the lean, less expensive, um, almost outsourced model to invention and then really invested and and really built up a muscle inside the company in commercialization. And and the idea, uh, he called it connect and develop, it really became the way P&G does innovation. It's been so successful for them that now many of their competitors do innovation the same way. 
Oh, that's perfect. Thank you. I like the dividing line, you know, is a good way to say that in terms of it's not just a segmentation just because by product type or by customer type, but, you know, it's something like things really do respond differently based upon whether it's sort of in camp A or in camp B. Yes. That's a nice way of putting it. Okay, cool. So then what's the fourth and final step there? Fourth and final step. This is one where we were really inspired by design thinking. So for a long time, there were three steps. And people would come back and say, I love the answer that I came to, but organizationally, I'm having trouble getting traction or it's not really getting implemented. And so um, we recognize that that it's actually not a terribly optimal process to lock yourself in a room with a bunch of smart people wait until the smoke rises out of that room and go out to the organization and say, voila, the brilliant, better answer, go execute on this answer. And so what we have done is borrow from the world of design thinking, which one of the core principles or tenets of design thinking is rapid prototyping, right? Where you develop the idea by testing it and then going back and revising it based on that feedback and then going out and testing and, and continuing that rapid prototyping process. And so we believe that the same thing can be applied to new ideas in an organization. You might not be physically building an object, but you can go out and share your ideas and ask you what would have to be true for this to work? What would have to be true for, for this to solve our problem and do some testing around that before you actually go and say, this is what we're doing. Go make it happen. So you actually blend the sort of process of ideating and making the idea better and improving it with the implementation of that idea. And that's really what stage four is all about is testing the ideas, making them better, and then getting to a place where you say, of the possibilities I generated, this is the one that I want to move forward with. Oh, that's so good. And I love that question. You know, I come from a consulting background myself. And so I talk about hypothesis-driven thinking a lot. (laughs) And on the July 3rd episode, the two questions that improve every decision, you know, we went there in terms of what must be true for this to work? Mm. And then how can you go about testing that, you know, quickly and cost effectively? And so that's great to hear that the best thinkers are putting that right in the process. Well, I'm glad you, I'm glad that that's a connection that you've made because we think it's an incredibly important final piece to this. And it's really important socially, right? It's how you help bring the organization along with you. Okay. Well, Jennifer, tell me, is there anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? I don't think so. I mean, I think you've done a great job of asking me all the questions about the book. Oh, shucks. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) All right, cool. Well, then tell us, is there a favorite quote you have, something you find inspiring? I mean, it's really cliche, um, but I I always default to to be the change you want to see in the world. I'm a big believer in taking action to affect change, particularly in in this day and age. Um, I think that if we could all embody that, we'd have a better shot at a better world. Thank you. And how about a favorite book? Well, there were too many. I thought about this as a question because you sent me a couple of sort of thought starters. So instead of telling you my favorite, I'm going to tell you the two books that are on my bookshelf I'm going to read next. All right, sure. So the first book that I'm going to read next is called The Revenge of Analog by David Sachs. Um, Real things and why they matter. And so David is making the argument that In a digital world, there are actually some profoundly wonderful things that are entirely analog and we've lost a lot. And so that's vinyl records, but it's it's also just the way we engage with each other um, in a more analog way. So I'm excited to read that and see what he has to say um, (laughs) about how we engage with each other. And then the other one is called The Inner Lives of Markets, How People Shape Them and How They Shape Us by Tim Sullivan and Ray Fisman. Um, and this is about how our modern economy is is composed in all of these really interesting little markets. Um, and that can be Uber has created a, a marketplace. Amazon has created a marketplace. And so uh, Tim and Ray make the argument that we need to more deeply understand the dynamics of these markets in order to understand the future of business. Okay, thank you. And how about a favorite tool? Favorite tool? Um, so I would say... Uh, my favorite tool from this book, so I'll self-promote just a little bit, um, is uh, one that um, we've borrowed from Systems Dynamics. 
so in systems dynamics, you can do system maps that help you understand how a system works. And in, in our case, what we do is build uh, what we call a cause, causal model. So how do you capture cause and effect, help visualize your thinking in a way that helps you think about how the outcomes you value are, are produced today and what you could do to produce different effects. And what's cool about it is it forces you to take the thinking that's in your head and actually visualize it and get it out on paper. So it's like a mind map, but you have to think about how the different bubbles are connected by cause and effect element. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. And how about a favorite habit? So I try to read something every day um, that isn't for work. Uh, at least a little something that isn't for work. I think that um, fiction is an incredibly important dimension of of how we develop as people, how we build empathy for each other. There's actually um, academic studies that will tell you that reading a work of fiction actually boosts your your empathic ability for a short period of time immediately after you finish reading it, particularly if it's good fiction. Um, and so I think reading a little bit more, uh, fiction is a great habit to get into. Okay. And is there a particular nugget that you teach or share in working with students or clients that really seems to connect and resonate, getting them nodding their heads and thinking that you are brilliant? (laughs) Well, I don't know if they think (laughs) that I'm brilliant, but, um, we often just, just talk about, um, this need to fall in love with the models, right? Which, which is in one way kind of hokey, but in another helps demonstrate what we're trying to do. And it's not always easy. I once tried to get a group of healthcare folks to fall in love with a model of um, letting parents choose whether or not they vaccinate their children. It was the hardest conversation I've ever had, <laughs> um, but it was really worthwhile because if you think about it, we've spent 30 years telling anyone who doesn't want to vaccinate their children that they are both stupid and evil for refusing to do so, that there's no scientific evidence, that they're bad people, that everyone should just follow the scientific doctrine. And we're getting the opposite result. Fewer and fewer people are vaccinating their children. And I'm a huge believer in vaccines. I think that they're a medical marvel. I want more people to vaccinate their children. Um, and so can seeking to understand why those parents are making the choices they're making and think about the models on on their terms at the very least change how we think about and talk to those parents. Can it actually change the, the outcome to something that is closer to what we would want? Yeah, I like that. You know, and I'm wondering, you know, in practice, if you're working with these clients and if you're really successful having them fall in love with the models, what if like, you know what, you're right. Let's let all the parents decide. This is so much better. So didn't quite get there with the healthcare folks. You know, we really should vaccinate everybody. Um, but it did, you could sort of feel the tension drop a little bit when it was just okay to do something other than yell at people about not vaccinating their kids, right? <laughs> it was okay to engage in a deeper understanding of these people as people and imagine they are something other than crazy lunatics, right? I think Mm -hmm. that the discourse that we see politically right now is so um, negatively inclined to the other side, whether that's Democratic Republican, whether that's the healthcare community and the anti-vax community. um, We've lost the ability to listen to each other, to engage with each other. And part of, of integrative thinking for me is about saying, yes, you can do this as a process. You can get your team and go and spend a day in a room working on a really hard business problem. But it's also about a way of being in the world. It's about how you engage with people who see the world differently than you do. And our natural instinct is to protect our models and, and to prove the other person is wrong and, and to argue and debate. Um, and instead, it's about saying when someone sees the world fundamentally differently than you do, that's a gift. There are things they see and understand that you don't. And it's the only way of making our own understanding of the world better is not to hang out with people who agree with us and feel great that we have the right answer and we're done, but rather to spend time with people who challenge and provoke and totally disagree because it helps you understand where your own thinking is limited, helps you understand why they believe what they believe and gives you a shot at making your own thinking 
richer, more robust, a better answer. Oh, excellent. Thank you. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch with you, where'd you point them? So probably Twitter is the easiest. So you can find me at Jennifer Riel at, uh, on Twitter. And my co-author is Roger L. Martin on Twitter as well. And you can also find us both at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. All right. And Jennifer, do you have a final challenge or call to action you'd issue to folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? So for me, it's about saying, um, how do I respond when I'm going into the meeting with the person I know is going to push my buttons, I know is going to disagree with me? Um, And for one meeting, can I recognize before I go in that that's likely to be the case, remind myself that I have a view worth hearing. I still love it. It's, it's an important perspective. So I'm going to share it, but I might be missing something. And so I can spend a little more time inquiring into what they believe, why they believe it and see if there is a, an answer that is better than what I walked into the room with. All right. Oh, Jennifer, this has been so eye-opening and insightful. I'm excited to put some of this stuff into practice in, in my own world and, and trying to fall in love with different models and dig the tension for a little bit longer. And I think there's going to be some really cool results in my own thinking and hopefully for thousands of listeners as well. So this has been a treat. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And I, I hope you do use it and let me know how it goes. I got such a kick out of Jennifer describing holding the two models together in tension because I think tension's the word for it. We don't like it. It feels kind of weird or uncomfortable, maybe in your belly, maybe on the back of your neck, like viscerally. And yet in so doing, great things can bubble up. So I just encourage you, if you find yourself in a spot where there's two opposing models or approaches to go after the thing and the trade-offs feel yucky, to just sit with it a little while and see what indeed can bubble up there. So great insights from Jennifer. And again, if you want to check out the show notes, the transcript, the links to items that we've referenced here, it's on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep211. I do also hope you'll push subscribe. You'll hear from our next guest. It's Maura Aaron's Mealy. She's talking about hiding in the bathroom. Great wisdom. If you are an introvert or if you love working with introverts or you don't like working with introverts, how to bring the best out of this kind of set of preferences. So I hope to catch you there and peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 